in three, two, one. In life, there are bound to be obstacles and challenges that we must face. It is how we respond to them that determines our success and ultimately shapes our character. Akeem Haynes is a prime example of how perseverance and resilience can lead to incredible achievements. In this episode, Akeem will share his experiences and insights on how to overcome adversity and setbacks in all areas of life, including sports, business, and personal growth, so you can thrive in any situation. Join me now for my conversation with Akeem Haynes. Well, hi, Akeem. Welcome to the program. We're glad to have you. Hey, man. It's a pleasure, Mike. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, me too. Now, where's home for you? You're up in Calgary, if I recall. Yeah, so up in Calgary, but we're working on all of the good old visa stuff because my wife is actually American. So I'll be moving down to Charlotte, North Carolina. So I'm just up here visiting, getting all the paperwork documents sorted out. But uh, North Carolina will be the new home. Oh, beautiful. And I know you went down to school in Alabama and did sports down there, and we'll get into that. Calgary's our home turf as well. We have a corporate office up in Calgary. And actually, my wife went to the same high school. You guys went to the same high school. Mango so, Cowboys. <laughs> yeah, just a few years ago. Just to, yeah, but a few years in between. She went way before your time. But anyway, <laughs> we're excited to have you here. You are an Olympian. You've got some experience. You've had success. You've had failures. You've kind of run the full gambit of things. And I think you have a great story to tell. And it's inspiring. People can use the tools because we all face setbacks. We have to get our own resiliency and become resilient as human beings. How did you get to where you are? Let's go back in history a little bit. Let's tell everybody where you came from and then how it evolved into the sports and we'll go from there. So born in Westmoreland, Jamaica, where I grew up, Mike, just to put in a little bit of context, the atmosphere where I was around 2016, there was 99 deaths in the area that I grew up in. Right. And that was the third highest death rate in Jamaica in that territory. So very early on, my dad told my mom, Joaquim can be a million one things in another country, but maybe if he stays here, he might be a little limited. Right. So he said, you know what? I want you guys to go to Canada. My uncle was up here. So we had a way in. This is back in the 90s. You only needed somebody in the country to get into right. the country. Right. So my dad, he worked and he worked and he worked and he worked. And to this day, I don't know how someone can work 365 days and not get sick once. So right. next thing you know, 1998, we're on our way to Canada. Didn't really know what to expect when you're young. You don't really think that there's any other place other than beautiful Jamaica, but you move to a place where there's snow. Now, Mike, my first interaction with snow, I thought it was salt, right? I thought it was salt and sugar. Until I tasted it and I realized this shouldn't be cold. You know what I'm saying? Like, it shouldn't be like this. No, I thought you'd have seen the bobsled team because I remember in 88 in the Olympics in Canada. Yeah. We loved those guys. Those guys won our hearts. So yeah. we thought, well, Jamaica's getting into winter sports. This is good, yeah. but, I, but I totally get it. Yeah. So we went to Yellowknife of all places before we came to Calgary, right? Oh, so, wow. you know, Yellowknife, much colder. In the summertime, it's great because we used to play soccer all the way through, but the sun was always up. So midnight. Whereas, yeah. Whereas <laughs> when it's flip reverse in the wintertime, I mean, you're waking up in the dark and you're coming home in the dark. You got dark, yeah. Mike, at like three o'clock in the yeah, afternoon. During the afternoon. It, and yeah, exactly. It's yeah. a little depressing now that I think about it. But at the same time, <laughs> right. it was another opportunity here. And shortly after that, we moved to Calgary and I got involved in sport uh, probably when I was about 13, 14 years old. And mm -hmm. I realized this could be an avenue here where I could one, improve my life, but also I could 
maybe do something in the professional setting here. I could get my school paid for. And so I started to take it a lot more seriously and started to really dedicate my time to it. And so that's kind of how I got to the sporting space. But along the way, there are things that I'm sure we'll get into that you don't become good at anything necessarily because or just a hardworking cat, right? There's a lot of things that actually come with it. And I always say hard work isn't always enough. You need some more intangible things that'll help make whatever it is that you want a reality. Mm. Luck part of that as well. Luck oh, who you know. Yeah. Thousand percent. How many times have we been in a situation or a circumstance and maybe we're there by ourselves and nothing seems like it's just normal stuff. But then we come with someone and they may know that person and then it kind of changes. Sometimes who makes a big deal, Mike? as you know. Yeah. And we'll get into some of that because I think that's part of the adversity chain. We face all kinds of political adversity. It could be any biases, all kinds of things. So you're definitely quick. So you realized you were quick. You joined the Canadian Olympic team. What was the event? I think you were the relay, I believe. Yeah. So I was a hundred meter sprinter and then I did the relay as well. I wouldn't say that I was reluctant to do track and field. I didn't want no parts of it. I really couldn't understand why like track and field is every other sports punishment, right? So like you got to run, you got to run, you got to run. But how I got into track and field was in high school, my gym teacher at the time, he's really good friends with Donovan Bailey. And he said, Jakeem, like if you want to get faster for football, because I was a dual sport athlete, just wanted to play football, didn't really have any interest in track and field. But he said, if you want to get faster for football, then you should probably do track and field because it does correlate. And I'm a guy where it's like, if one plus one equals two, Mike, it makes sense. I want things to make sense. So that's kind of how I got into it. But it wasn't until the 11th grade where I started to get scholarship offers from different schools in the mail. And that's when I started to say, wait a minute. So these guys are going to pay my tuition for me. And all I have to do is run and compete. Yeah, I think that I can do that. So that's kind of how I got into it. But the other part, Mike, you talked about the Olympics. I had no interest of going to the Olympics. I just wanted to get my school paid for. Wow, interesting. And what was your field of study when you were at school? What were you taking? I was taking human environmental science with a minor in nutrition because I went to a junior college before I got to the University of Alabama. I went to Barton Community College. And that's a whole other thing, too, that I tell now to the younger generation is sometimes you make a decision and not all of your courses are able to translate and switch over. So my majors was a little bit switched up that what I wanted to do, but I was still able to get that minor in nutrition. So. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Very good for you. Well, I was interested in having you as a guest what appealed to me on the topics that you speak about and to different organizations was just overcoming, like no one's immune from setbacks or yeah. from adversity, but we can choose how we react to those negative situations and circumstances, and we can come back stronger. That's where resilience comes in. How do we develop the mindset for that? So at the end of the day, you're still competing, right? It takes practice. So just because you were quick, you still have to train to get quicker. Just you had to learn technique. When you're in the relay, you're learning everything from the baton pass all the way through to structure, how you do mechanics of it, I guess. Then I know you went to play some football as well. How did that experience go? What did that yeah. teach you? Yeah. So I had a football coach in the ninth grade and he said, first time I ever played football, he came out, he says, Akeem, man, football will teach you a lot about life. Sports will teach you a lot about life. And maybe you've heard that as well too. I'm sure your right. kids have heard that as well too. But while that is true, I always felt like my life experiences prepared me for the ebbs and flows of the sporting space. Because when I was 
13 years old, man, there was a stint where my mom and I were homeless. Right. And so you, yeah, come, you moved around a lot, didn't you? You had like yeah, a dozen yeah. homes or something in just a short period of time. Yeah. And the irony is you come to Canada for a better life, but life happens and you actually take some steps backwards. Right. right? So for me, sports was kind of that thing where I could put all my focus into it for an hour, hour and a half and not have to worry about what home looks like or what I'm going to have next to eat or all of these different situations. So for me, Everything that I had to go through in my life prepared me for what sports was going to do, going to bring, and everything that you had to navigate through. So the adversity part of it, Mike, as you know, nothing goes exactly how you think it should in your head. According to plan, right. And it would be amazing if it did, but that's never the case. And I think we have to leave some room for grace, right? Yeah. Expect that at some point, like something is going to go wrong. At some point, something is going to take a shift. At some point, you're going to have to pivot, but you can't get too emotionally attached to your plan that you fight this other thing that could actually make you see things from a different perspective. So I've always tried to look at adversity like this. You've heard that saying, you can either see the cup is half empty or half full. Right. right? I've kind of always said to myself, well, what if I look at me as if I'm the cup? right? Because the cup is that one constant in all the variables. And so for me, it's like, man, how do I be so stable that I can be the cup so I can navigate through anything that may come my way? It doesn't mean I wake up and say adversity hit me, but it's like, if it does come, I can be stable here and I can pivot where I want to go. That's a great analogy. You always hear, are you a pessimist or an optimist? But if you're the cup, it really is irrelevant. It is what yeah. it is, right? It is what it is. And allow, like you said, the grace to come in or sometimes the universe conspires and surprises us with things. We go down one direction, we maybe end up something else. In my life, I was going to be a doctor at early stages. Yeah. And events occurred where, oh, wait a minute. I opened a business to help pay for my med school and finance med school and the wow. business did really well yeah and it took me away and i've been in business ever since as far as doing that goes so who knows luck comes into it or grace or however you want to view it it doesn't matter it happens but the preparation that's involved and mentally people react differently right like you've seen it working with professional athletes you've experienced disappointment the thrill of excitement anticipation and the competition and so you know what it looks like on both sides you know what it's like to win and to lose and to experience that how much preparation because that relates directly into our own lives so if you're a yeah. sales rep you're out making sales calls or you're running your own business and maybe things aren't going exactly the way you do timing can have a huge impact on it yeah. being in the right place at the right time has an impact yeah. on it pandemic hit as a professional speakers we lost our jobs we were recession proof but we weren't pandemic proof right yes and yeah. so for us that was always a big challenge and we have to pivot you have to come up with something else and it forces you to look at other things so how did you learn that mindset resiliency did you get that from mom or people around you where did you get that from yeah my mom taught me a lot of invaluable lessons without actually telling me she worked a whole lot tried to provide tried to put everything in order and same with my dad right and so i learned by watching and i learned by experiences and i learned like for example my mom would do what she needs to do but she would complain about it right? right she would complain about it but she would get up and do the thing that she's complaining about and so i said man what if i don't complain what if i just go and just do it right? right what if i just go and just make it happen and control what i can and so it has been a develop thing and i think the only way to develop 
the mindset needed to pivot through all of the ups and downs is you have to go and experience it. And you can't go in with this woe is me mentality. You got to go in with like, okay, this is happening to me. Now, what can I control? How do I change the one, the attitude of me? How do I change me and make sure I'm on track? And what are some practical steps that I need to control and to seize the day? I think when something happens to us, Mike, the first initial thing is to do something reactive to get that power back that we just lost. And it's not always the best decision. It's an emotional decision. We might sell something that we know we should have kept and held on to, right? We may be investing in a stock or something. And then the moment something happens, we're like, yo, we got to take it back. But maybe we needed to sit with that a little bit longer in order to make that decision. So for me, it was something that I learned, but it was all based on my experiences. And when maturity comes, you realize that patience, while speed does serve a purpose, patience is also an added asset that will help you make better decisions. Oh, that's interesting. So as far as reacting, when we're hit with adversity, that's one of the ways to have some patience that people react differently, right? And I know there's a couple of ways people can react. And sometimes they get the old victim mentality, right? That comes out of that. How do they get rid of that victim mentality and change the mindset? How do you I'm probably I'm probably one of the few speakers, Mike, that that actually I endorse a little pity party, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I think it's important to important feel. To have it. Yeah. Because when something happens to you, look, we're not robots. You should feel a ways about it. Like right. you should feel upset, maybe a little sad, maybe a little bit discouraged. And I think it's important to sit with what you feel, but I don't think you can stay in that feeling for too long. Maybe you take a day, maybe you take two days, but on that third day, I think it's time to get out of it, right? So it's okay to feel what you feel when you're going through it, but it's not okay to continue to stay there past a certain point. So for me, I would say, look, take your time, take your moment, feel what you feel. Maybe you got to sit and watch Netflix for a couple hours or hit an ice cream, whatever the case may be. But on that second or that third day, you got to tell yourself, okay, I've taken my time yeah, this sucks. It doesn't feel good, but I need to find some practical things that's going to help me get into positive momentum and forward direction. Mm, That makes sense. I thought it was interesting. Your Twitter handle is underdog, (laughs) AKH. So I'm curious, why do you see yourself as an underdog? There's that saying like where you, as an underdog, you have to work twice as hard. Right. I've always felt like during my life experience, I've always had to work six times, seven times as hard. And so it's just a mentality right? It's a mentality of, look, I'm not going to get comfortable. I'm not just going to be complacent here. I go into situations knowing that people are going to have their predisposed opinions of me. But then when I get into the room and I meet and all these different things that you're going to leave with a different perspective. And so it's also that reminder of just any opportunity that is my way, Mike, as the underdog, I'm going to seize it. No if, no ands, no buts. I'm going to seize it. No, I love that. And you know, what's interesting is everyone loves an underdog and we all love an underdog. So we do, we do. When I'm watching the Super Bowl, who's the underdog? I'm going for the underdog. Because you always like to see those come behinds because I think we can relate to that. We can all relate to being an underdog. I remember in school, I was not the most athletic person in the world. I was never your last guy picked. I was always your second last guy picked, your bonus player. You can win, you can can have victors. Yeah, but I still got to play, right. And so then if you can change the expectations and you get better, some people have just natural gifts, natural abilities, right? But it's nice to go in and be not assumed to be the lead guy because everybody's trying to knock that person off, right? <laughs> so when you go in the underdog, you can approach the situation in a stealthy way because nobody's really giving you time. So you've got nothing to lose. Yeah. People aren't expecting you to win. But when you do win, it's a nice story. 
Yeah. I always like being the hunter. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to be the hunted. You know what I'm saying? Right. Because yeah. It's better it's to be. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to be prey. <laughs> I want to be the one who's coming up. I can see left. I can see right. I can see what's happening. So that way I can be tactical with my approach, right? Because tactics and strategy and a plan is a big part of any type of success, as you know, Mike. Right. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring Active Campaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? Active Campaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C, and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. Active Campaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose Active Campaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Akeem Haynes. So what do you say is the importance of resiliency and how did you develop that? Because you obviously did, right? You've had some wins, you've had some losses. Yeah. How did you develop your resiliency? Man, it is probably one of the most important things that a person needs in life, period. It's bigger than business. It's bigger than sports. It's something you need, period, right? And resilience is the ability to respond to something in good fashion. And it goes through the experiences as well, Mike, but it also goes with knowing and reminding yourself, this is not going to break me. I'm not saying you won't bend. I've bent a lot of times in my life, but I didn't break. Even when I wanted to break, I said, no, man, this this isn't going to be the thing that takes me out. Right. Right. From 2010, 2015, Mike, my indoor personal best was 673. I ran that in high school. 12th grade, I got hurt, but I never ran an indoor personal best until 2015. So that was five years that I did not run an indoor personal best. And I was thinking to myself, what am I doing wrong? You ever ask yourself that, Mike, and the yeah. listener is like, yo, what's going on? You could be doing all of the right things, but it just feels like, man, it's not coming together. And a lot of times it may not be that you're doing anything wrong, it may just be that it's not your time yet. It's just not lining up. Like there's some things you need to learn. And I needed to learn to not look at negativity differently. And what I mean by that, Mike, is after races, right, I would say, man, if I didn't run the time that I thought I would in my head, I would beat myself up, right? We're always our toughest critics, but I went a little right. bit overboard with it. But one day after a race, Mike, I was like, you know, Akeem, well, what did go right today? I was like, man, nothing, man. I didn't get the time that I needed. And I asked myself again, no, what went right? Well, I ran really well for the first 30. My execution was nice. And then I got out of my transition, but I didn't finish the race strong. And that shift of a question that I asked myself made me go back to training with something positive to work towards, right? So when it comes to resiliency, to answer your question, you right. have to ask yourself the right questions. Mm, you ask yourself the right questions, you'll find the right answers in a positive way. And so for me, I just try and go through my life like that. Like when the pandemic happened, I'm like, okay, well, you just had eight gigs canceled, Akeem. That's quite a bit of money that you just lost. Yeah. How can we get it back? Yeah. What, are, what else can I do? Yeah. What are yeah. some things that we can do in order to make this happen? I've often found, Mike, that 
you ask your brain enough questions, it'll formulate some type of nerve and rhythm to be able to find that answer. Yeah, no, it tends to do that. Well, and it's an interesting thing about resiliency because when you're in the middle of it, it's bouncing back, right? It's looking at it going, all right, it's what it is. Something worked, something didn't work. And when you're competing and you're working at a high level with your adrenaline running at full speed, you're performing at a level that most people never get to do it. What was that like competing in the Olympics? And what did you learn from those experiences? So 2012 was my first Olympic Games. That was in London. I was 20 years old. So I didn't get to run that one, but it was a great experience because I got to see how everybody else operated at that level. I got to see Serena Williams, obviously Usain Bolt and Michael Phelps and Gabby Douglas and all of the people that we see on TV, but you get to see their mentality, right? You get to see what they're eating because you go to the cafeteria to eat and you get to see all of those different things. But four years later, uh, I went back to 2016. So I was four years later, but I was also four years older maturity wise. So I was faster. I was stronger, but I was more prepared this time around. When you go the first time, it was kind of like, it's an experience. If you do well the first time, great, but more times than not, you're not going to do your best the first time around. So soak up all of the experience and the moment. But then when you get to do it again, you're not there for the experience anymore. You're there to do a job, right? And so that's what I took into it. So the second time around was in Brazil and what it was like walking down to my lane on paper, you look in the audience and you could see people's faces, everybody screaming, flags everywhere. And don't get me wrong, the stadium was loud. But when I got into the stadium, like it was silent. I couldn't hear anything. You know what I'm saying? Like, all I could hear was, okay, Akeem, you got this one job, man. When the gun goes, you go. Focus yeah. on what you got to do. Don't worry about all the external stuff. Don't worry about that, man. When the gun goes, you go execute. Pick one thing right now. Focus on that. Everything is going to be good. So you go back to how you prepare. I've always been a self-talk guy. Whether I'm in practice, whether I'm in meets, I'm always talking to myself. So I just referred back to what I know. And in pressure situations, like especially in the sporting space and as an entrepreneurship, but in the sporting space, in pressure situations, you don't do anything new when you're there. Just do what got you there. Because when you go to the pressure situation in the sporting space and you do something new, there's a good chance you are not going to get the result that you've gotten. You know, so for me, it was just embracing the moment. It was loud as heck, but at the same time, it was so quiet inside my head. That's interesting. When you're actually preparing, like how long is an average race typically? So when you're running the hundred, the whole thing's over in seconds. <laughs> yeah, right? it's like 10. Yeah, it's like 10 seconds. Yeah. And the relay is how long? How long is the relay? So... 37, 37, 60, 37.60 seconds. Wow. Yeah. So we're talking just over a minute and all that preparation that goes into it. So let's say, okay, you're lined up in the blocks, right? Or what do you call them? I think you call them blocks or chalks. Yep. yep. Blocks. Yep. Yeah. Block, blocks is it. And we've done that. It's been since high school. We do that. And you're getting your mind focused. Where do you go? What's going on in your head? So we watch it on TV. We've seen the runners over the years. So you're there, you're lined up, you're crouching. Are you tense? Are you relaxed? What are you thinking about? What's the level of focus at that point? Yeah. So the human brain can't focus on too many things at the same time. Right. So I literally pick one thing. I'm like, okay, when the gun goes, Akeem, you go. So don't anticipate. Don't try to guess it. Just listen to the gun go. Now, there'll be guys and women that when they're in their set position, they'll be looking down, but I close my eyes. 
And I close my eyes because when I was in practice a couple of years back, I would be in my set position, but my eyes are open, but I would be looking over into other lanes and they would be drawing me off. Right. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. Cause one, it's one false start rule one and you're done. And so for me, I close my eyes and I zone in and I hone in on that gun. I practice all of the things that I need to do in practice, like my arm splits, making sure I'm staying right. low to 30 meters, making sure that I'm dorsiflex, making sure that my cadence and my rhythm is not too choppy, that I'm getting hang time off the ground. I do all that in practice. I think in practice, but when you're at the starting blocks in competition, you pick one thing and you roll with that one thing. And for me, that one thing was just when the gun goes, you go. Now, when you're off and running, you okay, you're taking a breath. If you're anticipating it, there's a breathing part of it because you're probably not breathing once you're actually going, right? Like you've <laughs> you've already taken in that energy, that air, oxygen. Yeah. You're you're going. Yeah. You'll figure out how to breathe somewhere in between there if you need to. It's just muscle memory at that point, isn't it? Yeah, a thousand percent. I mean, you're in the blocks, you're taking a deep breath in, and then when the gun goes, you're exhaling to 30 meters. So I mean the hundred meters, man, at the elite level, you're probably taking maybe six to 10 breaths at that. So it's a big breath in and it's just a long exhale and it could be less. I think Usain Bolt takes something like 36 to 39 steps, but he's six foot six, right? So I take right. about 50 steps, right? right? But that's just how quick that it can be. And so it forces you to make adjustments and to make decisions on the fly in real time in a high pressure situation. When you say, oh, hey, it looked like a train wreck, you could see it coming. When you're <laughs> actually under seven seconds, it goes fast. So what kind of calculus is going on when you're actually running? Are you seeing the other players, the runners on the field? Are you thinking, oh, hey, I need to do this Friday. How focused is this? How much attention are you paying to the crowd, the audience, the environment? Yeah. So you have to pay attention on your lane, but it's easier said than done. You know what I'm saying? When you know someone is a great starter, yeah, you're trying to watch what you're doing, but at the end of the day, we're human beings, right? We got peripherals. We can see what's going on, Yeah, right. but you can't get sucked into their game plan that you lose sight of yours. So it's that discipline to be able to say, you know what? I don't care what they have going on, regardless of the outcome. I'm going to stay disciplined in running the straight line as quickly as I can. You honestly never really hear the crowd. Maybe you hear them at the beginning, but regardless if there's a crowd or no crowd, if you execute the way you're supposed to, you're going to run fast, you know? So it's just all about execution. And that's the most important thing. As you're going down the track, when you get to the end and you realize, hey, I'm here, I made it, I'm finished top three or whatever the number is, yeah. is there more to give or is your tank empty at that point? Like, is it really empty? or yeah, there was a little more I could have done. It's funny, right? Because it's like when I'm training and I'm watching all of the other disciplines, like the 800 meter girls and guys and the 400 meter girls and guys, it looks like they're training a lot harder because they're going for a longer distance. Right. But when you're a sprinter, you're doing the same amount of intensity. They're all equivalent. They're just spread up in different parts. So when you are running 100 meters, man, it's kind of ironic when you feel fast, it may be a good chance you didn't run fast. But when the race kind of feels a little bit slow to you, right? When you feel like all my races, Mike, to 30 meters, I'm like, man, the ones that I ran really fast, I'm like, oh, that wasn't fast. That was slow. And then I look on the clock and it's like, oh, wait, that was 10 what? It didn't feel like that. Right. right? So when you're executing at a high level, it feels like, like water. There's no fight. 
there's no friction it just flows just flows so, that's interesting so when you finish and cross the line you know you empty the tank like you got nothing left you yeah. may not be breathing as hard but your body will feel it if you run what you're supposed to run right when you hit that line there's such a you we're talking tenths of seconds hundreds of seconds between first place and second place and yet the rewards are completely <laughs> different i remember watching a grand national horse race once first place horse runs around the track wins a couple hundred thousand pounds second place earned half as much in it but it was only beat by a nose yes. and often often in your racing and when you're doing it you're only being beaten by fractions of a second like it's yeah. so fast and and in real life people have bigger margins than that don't they yeah yeah that's such a great way and a great discussion mike because that's something that the track and field space doesn't talk about as much as well too is the financial side of it you talked about that horse crossing the line and making a hundred thousand dollars maybe that's not the case when it comes to track and field at the olympics because it's still regarded as an amateur sport right and so you're making maybe thirty thirty five thousand dollars to win gold Right. Yeah. We got bronze 2016 and I got $10,000, but you make more money post Olympics. Sure. So that's speaking, the, writing books, yeah. talking about it, of course. Yeah. So that's where the real money is, which is a shame because the Olympic committee, they're making so much money, right? From sponsorships yeah. to having it in the host country to all of that. So even though people are coming to watch the athletes, the athletes are getting the short end of the stick every single time. Yeah, I think that translates right across most sports too. Yep, I get it. Hey, let's shift gears a little bit. I know you do a lot of work with youth. You've received awards and accolades from different groups. The Excellence Award from the Foundation of Global Sports Development for your community work that you do because you work with youth. It's important to you. So what's something that you wish every kid should know to be better prepared for work or in life in general? If you could teach them all. And yeah, what would be the core of some of maybe your talks when you talk to these groups? Yeah. So I've always been a firm believer, Mike, that, you know, I feel like every generation kind of says about the other generation, well, man, they're getting worse or this case and they should do this. But I've always been a person where like, I'm never just going to talk about how dirty the world is and not do my best to try to clean it up. And so I just try and give the youth information that I didn't have. Right. And the one common theme, Mike, is a lot of these young kids, they just don't believe in themselves. Right. They don't believe that it can happen for them. Right. And it's hard. And I get it. When you come from certain situations, right? Like I didn't think that I could go to the Olympics. I didn't know anybody that did it. And when you don't have representation of what that looks like, you don't think that that can be you. It's hard to see something when you can't like touch it. You right. know what I'm saying? So when I go in to go speak at schools or jails or go with them, I try to tell them what is it that you could see yourself doing? And then I try to give them practical things in order to get that. Like, look, you're going to have to be a lot more disciplined than you are. You know what I'm saying? Hard work right. is not enough. Hard work should be a prerequisite for everything. So we shouldn't even need to say you got to work hard. You it's should know. Training. Yeah. yeah, it's your training. You've got to train for success. You've yeah. got to train for running it faster. You've got to train your body, your mind. It's all connected. We want instant gratification yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Without putting in the effort and the work. But everyone has achieved any success in their life. Typically, there have been years and years of sweat and tears into it. And so what I tell them, Mike, is I ask them this question. I say, what are you willing to give up in order to get what you want? Because it's going to come with a cost, right? So you can tell me all the great things that you want to do, and I'm going to be very supportive behind it. But I also want to know, what are you willing to give up? Because I feel like if we put that out in the forefront, 
then we can see if that's a path that they want to embark on. So mm. if they have something, if I ask that question, they have a response. I'm like, okay, great. So here's how we go about this. But a lot of times when I ask that question, they don't know how to answer it. And I say, you know what? Take some time. I'll ask you in a little bit, think about it, and then come back. Because everything comes with a cost. And it's not always a financial cost. It's a time cost. It's a learning cost. But success requires you to pay full price. And you got to pay full price. Mm, Well said. Well said. What did you feel you had to give up? Time. But that never bothered me. Like I wasn't a big party guy. I wasn't a guy who was really into all that. Not really the biggest. I wasn't into the big social aspect of things all the time. Like I knew that my circumstances was different and I was willing to tell people, look, man, I I can't do all these things. I got to stay focused for the next six months. This is what I got to do. So I'm willing to give up whatever it is if I believe that it's worth it. So I gave up a lot of time, time that I'll not get back, but it's time that I wouldn't change and I would give it up again. Yeah. Well, you talk about focus and focus is important. What helps you stay focused on a long-term goal or objective when the motivation starts to run low or dwindle a little bit? Yeah. That's a great question, Mike. And I'd love to hear your take after this as well, too. But as motivations, it's like an energy drink, right? You drink it and you're on top of the mountain for a couple of hours. Yeah. And then a coffee will do the same thing. Yeah. And then you crash. So my thing has always been, can I stay disciplined to this? And so every single day, I would say, do one thing that is going to get you closer to where you want to get to. Yeah. If you want to be, for example, if you want to have a a YouTube channel, right? Well, you got to get used to speaking in front of a camera. You got to get the practice and you got to get those reps and you got to do all of that consistently. Even if it's for five minutes, even if it's for 30 seconds, you got to consistently do it because I know that a lot of people, they'll work hard. They'll be disciplined for a month, two months, but they won't be disciplined for five or six for seven months. So that was the edge that helped me in sport that I take in business. Now it's like, I know that I can be a lot more disciplined than the average person. And so that's what I think it comes down to. And also knowing yourself, like my wife, for example, she is a world champion herself and she works very hard. I'm a guy, Mike, where I can hammer out the grind don't need to leave the room, do my thing for like a month. I can just be in the house just for a month and just do what I got to do. But she knows herself, right? At about two weeks in, okay, we got to go to the park. We got to go to the mall. We got to go to the movies. We got to do something. So I think it's very important to know how you operate. Right. Know how your system works. Find what works best for you. But I'm curious, Mike, same question to you. Yeah. For me, focus, I take a similar approach. So to me, what I do is I set whatever that long-term objective might be, get the picture of it. Can I see it? Can I actually see it? If I was using your sport as a metaphor, can I see myself getting my medal with the national anthem going? I'm going to visualize all of that. I'm going to look at what everybody does. I know that there's setbacks to this. So what I do is I set goals and well, here'd be a perfect example. I'm in my early sixties now and looking you know, I was, good too. Oh, thanks man. I work out and work out, but I want to be healthy. So when I'm older, I want to be healthy and I maintain health. So I, I work on nutrition. I work on strength. I work on activity, right? So I don't take a single pill, but I see myself up on stage well into my sixties and have my content good. And mm-hmm. then my daily habits though is 5 a.m. 
a.m. I'm out the door and I'm 10,000 steps a day plus. I'm about 15 to 17,000. I play men's softball, doubleheader once a week. I yeah. golf, I do that. So I protect the knees and strengthen things. But for me, it's walking and nutrition and doing that. But I routinely just do it day in, day out. And let the process get me the results. So I don't focus mm. on what that end goal is. I focus on what's the process that will get me to the end goal if I do that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, for instance, I might want to be an NFL football player. Right. And I might have that choice or to play football or basketball, but I'm 5'11. There's no way I'm going to do that. I just don't have the game. I can want it all I want. No amount of practice is going to do this. No amount of training, the best coaching in the world, because it's an unrealistic expectation. Now, I've seen small basketball players, five foot four. We've seen examples of this. The bugs. Yeah, exactly. At Denver, I think, yeah, for the Nuggets. But that's not me. So it's being realistic in the first place, what that is. Mm-hmm. What are those habits that are going to get me there? And then I'll discipline to the habit. So I would say I'm disciplined and like I don't miss a day. If I'm sick, I don't miss a day. I keep yeah. doing it unless I just can't move, right? That's the only yeah. way. <laughs> oh, that's really and, good. Yeah, I approach every day with that. And so it's habits and then the outcome is good. But I'm not also attached to the outcome. And I think that's important. In other words, success for me isn't always arriving at that outcome because I'm judging it as I think I want this. Well, why do I want this? Like, why do I want to be doing this? Is it to be cool? Do I want to achieve some status? What's the underlying reason? So I think you have to want it and for the right reasons. Otherwise, if it's for the wrong reasons, it doesn't work, right? That's how I do it. That's how I stay focused. And then the key is what's next. So once you achieve that objective, what's next? So for me, I would say it's, what are the habits that get you there? So that's why I asked you some of these questions. We all watch Rocky. Remember Rocky <laughs> came out? And of course, there's so many of them. But, you know, you watch this underdog, right? Or Rudy, you know, the football movie. right? Yes. And you see the underdog and you see him achieve. And we all love that. We're all like, this is great. But what did he do every day? He worked hard. He trained hard. He focused hard. He sacrificed all the good points that you talk about. That's what it takes. So I think it's important to define what success means to us and what we really want. percent, yes. And be careful what you're going after because you just might get it. When you have the elements in your life, you got a lovely partner. I don't, do you have children yet? No, not yet. And well, we have seven. So to me, I, from a life success point of view, I already feel successful. We've raised seven wonderful kids that are smart, intelligent, making the world a better place. And I could stop and that's my biggest, greatest accomplishment. And they're all free thinking. They aren't going to do everything the way we raised them. And that's a good thing because we were doing the best we could, but we just instill that. And hopefully the next generation is better and stronger. So yeah. To hear that right there, man. That's beautifully said. Thank you for sharing that, man. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you. So here's a pop quiz for you. I want you to finish this sentence. A setback is blank. A setback is part of life. Part of life. So what were some of the biggest setbacks you had to overcome? Biggest setback I had to overcome. So I talked about when I was homeless, man, staying at the bus stop. People always ask me, what's the hardest part about being homeless? And the hardest part is stranger than my sound. It's not exactly being the homeless part. It's the fact that now that messes with your head because you don't expect good things to happen to you. You're in this position and you're just thinking to yourself like, man, is this how my life really, like, is this how it's always going to be? Mm-hmm. Like, is, is this how it's always going to stay? How do I get myself to really think that good things are going to happen to me? And so that's been always a battle, especially when setback does happen. And yeah, I'm a warrior at heart. Absolutely. But even the strongest people at times get tired of being strong sometimes. Yeah. And so that's probably one of the biggest set forwards, as I like to call it now, for me, obviously, 
training and track and field as well too. The five years that I didn't run a personal best indoors is something that I hold dear to my heart because that was a very frustrating time because others was running well and I was working much harder and much more disciplined than they were in those areas. And I wasn't seeing those same results. So that was a big pivot for me as well too. And I'd also say the transition from track and field to speaking, the fact that I made more money speaking than I did running track and field. And so that was something that was dear to me as well, too, because it's not imposter syndrome by no means, but when you physically can see the results, when you're physically working, it's easier to see the results. But when you have to think your way into some things and you have to learn and you have to be cutthroat sometimes and you have to learn all of these things that you know nothing about, but you stand to tell the test of time. So those are some of the things that that I'm most proud of about the set forwards in my life. Awesome. Set forward. Great way to do it. Hey, well, Akeem, this was absolutely enjoyable. What's the best way for people to find you if they want you to come talk to their organizations, their teams, or in, on the coaching? And we'll put all this information in the show notes as well. The website, www.akeeminspires.com. Email akeeminspires at gmail.com. Social media, underdog, AKH, across all platforms. Those are the best ways. Yeah, we'll put that all in there. Well, you're a very good example on perseverance and overcoming obstacles and giving us a formula in order to deal with adversity and setbacks. And I know life hasn't been perfect for you, but it's helped bring you to where you are today. And where you are today is helping so many and hundreds and thousands when you get to speak to them and talk to them. So thanks for being here. Thanks for putting in the effort and in your life in general and being such a good role model and an example. Mike, thank you so much, man. It is a pleasure. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My executive producer is Beth Smith and director of research, Tori Smith. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. This podcast is subject to copyright by Summit Media. Goodbye.